So my guest today is Seth Baum. Seth is an interdisciplinary researcher working across a a wide range of fields in natural and social science, engineering, philosophy, and policy. His primary research focuses on global catastrophic risks. He also works in astrobiology. His research aims to inform major social decisions through careful attention to their impacts on the world and the universe, to fundamental ethical principles, and to the people and institution involved in the decisions. He is the co-founder, along with Tony Barrett, and the executive director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. He is also a research affiliate at the University of Cambridge Center for the Study of Existential Risk. So welcome to the show, Seth. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. So Seth, you know, there's lots of things I think we could talk about since we share a bunch of research interests, but I've decided to structure our conversation around a paper that you recently published called Long-Term Trajectories of Human Civilization. Now, this is a paper that you co-authored with, I believe, 14 others, at least that's what's in the version that I have, uh, several of whom have been former guests on this podcast. And the paper appears in the journal Foresight and was also recently profiled on the BBC News website in an article entitled The Perils of Short-Termism, Civilization's Greatest Threats. Now, if I were to summarize it, I would say that the paper tries to make two main contributions to how we think about the future. First is that it makes a plea for the scientific and ethical study of the long-term human future as an antidote to short-termism. And it also illustrates what this study might entail by sketching out four possible long-term trajectories for human civilization. Now, we'll talk about both aspects of the paper, but I thought I might just start by asking you how this paper came about, how it was written and constructed. So I mentioned at the outset that it was authored with a bunch of other people. So how actually did that work? And why did you write the paper in that way? That's a good question. So the paper started out as a discussion at a conference uh, hosted in in Gothenburg, Sweden, by uh, Uli Hagström of Chalmers University of Technology. And the co-authors of the paper are all participants in that discussion group at the event that we attended. It was an event. uh, The overall event was on the topic of existential risk. And uh, I had led the discussion just to you know float the some some ideas that I had been thinking about on this topic of long-term trajectories and get people's reactions and feedback and it turned into a very lively conversation with uh, a lot of people having a lot of very interesting and and I felt complimentary perspectives on the topic and so at that discussion group meeting I decided to ask people who participated if they were interested in joining uh, on a paper on the topic and the uh, a lot of the people there agreed to that most of the people there a few weren't able to and that's how the paper started and so was it a case where you wrote a draft of the paper and then other people contributed their thoughts afterwards based on notes that you'd taken at that session um, how did the, i'm just curious as to kind of the method behind the sure, construction sure, yeah. of it the 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 process for this was I, I wrote an initial draft that was uh, was indeed based on notes from that that I had taken from the discussion group, bringing in a lot of ideas that uh, different people had introduced in the discussion, as well as some of my own ideas on the topic, and that was the starting point for ongoing effort by the the co-authors to revise and improve the draft until it uh, ended up in the the final version that we submitted to the journal. Yeah, I mean, one of my reasons for asking that question is that I'm, I'm quite interested in the ways in which 
collectives or groups of people can kind of leverage their different capacities and skills to produce a common research output. So I did a paper previously that adopted a somewhat formalized collective intelligence methodology to come up with a research framework for understanding algorithmic governance. So I'm always interested in how people can enable groups to work more effectively and I'm keen on kind of reviewing some of the the methods by which people do that. But I don't want to get yeah I don't want to get too bogged down on that particular one, point today. One quick point I'll I'll make is this is a paper that yeah I probably could have written it on my own might have been easier working with a, a big group of of co-authors can make things more more difficult because you have input from more different places. But uh, I'm quite confident that the final product ends it up a lot better because there was so much input coming in from so many different people, people who know things that I don't know, who have perspectives that I don't have. They really push the paper in, in very positive directions, and I'm quite happy with the, the final product. Yeah, I mean, I find that as well sometimes with collaborative work. It can be a, a kind of a blessing or a curse. You know, it, um, it it's often slower and it's like herding cats to some extent if you've got a lot of co-authors, but it also does, I think, produce better insights and a richer set of perspectives or thoughts on a topic. Uh, anyway, let me just move on then to the, you know, the substance of the paper itself. And one of the questions I want to ask at the outset is just, you know, why did you want to write this paper in particular? And let me put that another way, which is like, why do you think we should care about the long-term future? Why do you think it's so important you know, isn't the the short term ultimately more important to us as a practical matter? Since it, you know, unless we survive and thrive in the short term, we're not going to get to the long term. And also, you know, to paraphrase, I think it's John Maynard Keynes, like in the long run, we're all dead, aren't we? So why do we worry about the long term future of humanity? Well, in the long run, each individual would be dead. I mean, each of us who's alive now will certainly presumably not be alive thousands or millions of years from now but somebody else might be alive at that time. And as a matter of ethics, I believe that we should value lives or whatever else it is that we might care about. We should value them the same regardless of what time they happen to be alive, that a, a life that lives circa 2019 is not any more or less uh, inherently valuable than a life that's living in a million years from now or, or at any point in time. And so for, for this reason, for me, uh, this is my motivation for uh, trying to get an understanding for what the long-term future could look like, and in particular, what we might be able to do today to improve the long-term future. The one, one thing about the long-term future is it can be quite large. And so if we're looking for opportunities to, to make the world a better place in some sense, then this might well be where the best opportunities are. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about that from a philosophical perspective. So the ethical stance that you're taking there, does do you see any rationality or plausibility in discounting to some extent the value of future lives? Or do you think <laughs> that we should have a pure kind of impartial approach to the valuing of future lives? Sure. Um Man, we could talk about discounting all day if we, if you wanted to. That was, that was the topic of my my PhD dissertation. So I would say we should not discount future lives in the sense of uh, how much we intrinsically value them. 
uh, and I should clarify, when I say intrinsically value uh, something, I mean valuing it for its own sake. So each of our lives might be you know, worthwhile in its own right, uh, that's its intrinsic value, and it might also be valuable for other reasons, like we work and contribute to the rest of the world, and that's valuable for our contributions to the rest of the world. Uh, that's a, a different type of value. But for how much our lives are valuable for their own sake, I would say that should be the same regardless of when the life happens to exist. That that aspect of things should not be discounted. Yeah, I had forgotten that you had written a dissertation on, on, <laughs> on discounting, and so you could talk about this all day. Um, yeah. But you know, let's move on to the actual substance of studying the the long-term future of what the, the objects or contents of that study might be. So, you know, the paper is about the long-term trajectory of human civilization. So I think there are two questions that arise from this. You know, what is a human civilization? What is it that we're trying to study and predict the future of or anticipate the future of? And also then, what is the actual time horizon over which we want to study the future of human civilization? Is it eternity to the end of the known universe? What What's the time frame that you envisage here sure first let me make one quick uh, addendum to the previous question which is I, I should note that what i'm describing are my own ethics views the co-authors of the paper do not all share these ethics views the the co-authors i i'm pretty sure that all of them do at least care some about the long-term future but uh, the exact ways in which they do uh i believe may may vary from person to person among the co-authors so I don't uh, I don't want to give the impression that I'm speaking on behalf of all of them for this so yeah uh, I mean just before you go on I think that's an important point but it is also a point that kind of emerges in the discussion as well when we talk about the ethical dimension to the study of the long-term future I think the the different approach we take does influence how we value and think about that the contribution of that study so I just want to put that in yes. Yes, I would agree with that. Okay, so to to your question about what's involved in in the study of the long term future and and how how we would define it. So uh, defining as far as defining human civilization, that's the starting point. Defining civilization is relatively easy. I'm just going to read from the paper quote here: "Dictionary definitions of civilization emphasize an advanced state of cultural organizational." social and technological development, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Defining human civilization is a little more tricky as far as what it is to mean human. In our paper, we took a, a pretty open-ended approach. We, we put a fair bit of thought into this, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we came up with uh, because you know, a, a basic definition might be the species Homo sapiens sapiens. The problem is when you're talking about the really long timescales that we're talking about, the biological species Homo sapiens sapiens may well uh, not exist anymore for the simple reason that uh, species tend to you know, change genetically over time through the, the normal process of genetic drift. But just because some genetic drift takes place doesn't mean that, that we, might, we, we don't necessarily care about it. It might be... You know, our, our descendants might have some some different DNA in in certain respects and might qualify as a different species, but they're still our descendants. They still might be doing things uh, that we care about, living lives that we care about, and so on. Uh, 
The other aspect to this is that when we're talking about this really long-term future, it's possible that human nature may change uh, due to uh, technological interventions. I mean, already today, we uh, have a, a rich discussion of the idea of transhumanism, which is you know, the idea of changing human nature through technology. At least that's part of the, the idea of transhumanism. And so it's not hard to imagine that over the very long timescales that we're talking about, human nature may be changed in important ways from our technology. In fact, potentially we would not even be biological organisms anymore that you know, there are scenarios, for example, in which human minds are uploaded into computers and we have a, a computer or, or robotic existence as opposed to a, a traditional biological existence. In the paper, we didn't want to have to constantly account for whether the the beings that 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 are are living on qualify as as human in in some traditional sense. And so we defined human as being anything that descends from the current human civilization, which could be uh, our biological descendants or technological descendants uh, or a combination of the two that carry on our civilization into the future. Yeah, so I mean, the idea of any descendant population from us, where that doesn't necessarily involve genetic descendants per se, it could be any kind of, it could be a technological form of descendants as well. In the paper, you're trying to formalize the study of future human civilization as both a scientific and ethical field of study. That's the language that you use. Uh, maybe you could explain what those two dimensions or aspects to the study are. What's the scientific element and what's the ethical element? The scientific element is uh, the study of what the long-term future of human civilization uh, could look like, uh, what we believe it will look like or might look like. And then the ethical dimension is what we think it should look like, uh, essentially uh, for all the different possible long-term trajectories of human civilization, uh, which ones do we think are better than others? How much do we value them overall? And uh, likewise, what do we think that this means as far as what people today should be doing? In, in terms of the ethical dimension, do you factor in or think about this in terms of the ways in which ethics and values might shift and change themselves over time, that they may be a part of the what transforms with the future? I mean, we know looking at the past that our, at least some of our ethics and norms are quite different and the things that we value are quite different. I mean, one example of that is just we seem to have an expanding moral circle, to use Peter Singer's term. I mean, do you, is that something that needs to be factored into the study of the long-term future, the way in which ethical principles and values themselves might alter? That's a fair question. Um, I think that's something that potentially could be factored in to the extent that we can say anything meaningful today about the, the long-term future of human values. That's not a, a topic that we explored in our paper uh, offhand. It, it strikes me as a, a difficult question to make much progress on, to try to project or predict or, or, or just have any sort of expectation on 
what human values might look like thousands or, or millions of years from now. That sort of uh, uh, detail seems to me more difficult to, to make much progress on. But I say that not having really tried or, or seen seen much effort to do so. So maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've been thinking about looking into a bit in, in the recent past and the, trying to think about ways in which you might be able to formalize or say something meaningful about the way in which value systems change over time and maybe linking it to certain properties of, of hypothesized successor species for humanity, so to speak. But I, I haven't really gotten very far with that idea either. I mean, th this does, however, bring up a larger question about the study of the long-term future, which is just, and I think this is a criticism that people would tend to lay at your door would be that isn't the study of the long-term future hopelessly speculative and that it's very difficult to say anything meaningful or useful about the long-term future um yeah there are plenty of details about the long-term future that are i would say probably hopelessly difficult to to try to predict and and are probably just not worth trying. I mean, what are some of the things that people like to predict right now? Like, who's going to be the next president of the United States? and Or who's going to be president 10 years from now? Or, you know, who's going to win, win the next uh, uh, World Cup tournament? Or, or you know, t take your pick of things that people predict. I and mean, we don't even know if there's going to be a U.S. president or a World Cup tournament you know, a hundred or a thousand years from now, the world could change in ways that that prevent those things from from occurring, or, or we decide not to do them anymore. Uh, how, however, it plays out. Those those sorts of details are, I would say, too difficult and frankly not not really worth the effort to to try predicting or really uh, discussing for for longer timescales. But there are other aspects. Uh, maybe simpler, more basic, and potentially even more important aspects of the long-term future that I believe we can speak intelligently about and are very much worth pursuing. And the simplest is, is there still a human civilization at all, or or has it disappeared? This is something that we get into in our, our discussion of catastrophe scenarios. Whatever we might think about the, the ethical values of the long-term future, presumably they at least prefer to be alive than to, to not be alive. I feel like that is probably a relatively safe uh, expectation about whatever their their preferences and values might be, and so we can think about will there will they still be alive? Will there still be a civilization that permit that permits some sort of you know more you know advanced state of development? It, will it resemble what we have now? Will it be different in in fairly basic ways? There are some things that we are able to point to, some some trends, some possibilities that are looming uh, on on the horizon that could substantially change the the overall makeup of human civilization. And then meanwhile, there are aspects of uh, the the natural world, the the planet, its its ecosystem, the the broader universe that we can speak quite intelligently on over extremely long timescales in some cases. And that is, a lot of that is not speculative at all. And so we can take those uh, factors into account and think about what that would mean for human civilization. Just to give a really quick, simple 
basic example, we expect that life as we know it will no longer be able to live on planet Earth within a few hundred million years, maybe a billion or a couple billion years, give or take, something in that range. And this is because the sun will gradually get warmer and larger and eventually becomes too hot for life as we know it to, to live on Earth. That's really not speculative at all. The evolution of stars is something that's quite well understood by astronomy. And the idea that we won't be able to live on Earth once uh, the sun hits a certain point, yeah, it's, it's really hard to imagine any way that that would be false, especially once we hit the point in which the sun gets so large that it engulfs the, the planet that we're on. And so, you know, a few basic things like that we can, we can speak uh, with a lot of confidence on based on the current state of the science. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I mentioned to you in, in correspondence was that it could be paradoxical to some extent in that if you zoom out far enough, it's maybe more tractable and more predictable, the long-term future, whereas actually the short-term future, if you're trying to predict the fate of particular individuals or cultural institutions, as you point out, that might be harder to get any... Uh, prediction or traction on uh, but if you are sufficiently kind of coarse grained in your analysis it might be a little bit easier to actually say something meaningful and not speculative about the long-term future so i mean the paper that itself the the bulk of the paper is structured around sketching out you know four possible long-term futures for human civilization we're going to go into these in some detail but maybe you could just give us initially a brief lay of the land like what are the four possible futures that you envisage the first is the status quo where uh, human civilization remains in a more or less its current form uh, essentially in, indefinitely into the long-term future the second is catastrophe trajectories in which there's uh, some sort of major harm to human civilization the third is technological transformation trajectories in which radical transformation, uh, radical technological breakthrough fundamentally changes human civilization. And then the fourth is astronomical trajectories in which human civilization expands beyond our, our home planet into outer space. And do you see these as like, that's it in terms of the, the, the possibility uh, field, like the, the, these are jointly exhaustive or, or scenarios, or do you think there's other the space for alternative scenarios? We did not have any other uh, scenarios that uh, we felt compelled to bring in. Everything that we came up with fit into uh, one of these four scenarios or, or, or trajectory types or, or maybe into some combination of these four trajectory types. I don't want to strictly rule out the possibility of other trajectory types, but it does seem that these cover uh, the uh, at least the bulk of the the primary trajectories that could occur. Okay, and so if somebody comes along and finds some other possibilities, that would be interesting. But for based on the mutual scrutiny of yourself and your co-authors, it seemed like these were pretty much exhaustive uh, categories. Categorization. Do you, do, uh, do you have any that that you might like to add? Uh, I don't. Uh, so okay. I mean, I, th I think as you point out, these are kind of big buckets that you can fish. Yes more specific scenarios into so yeah i mean i think anything i would tend to come up with would probably just end up being a a more specific scenario that fits into one of those buckets if i thought about it in a bit more detail uh, but let's start off with the, the first of those scenarios which is the status quo now 
I mean, what I first read about this, I thought that struck me as a little bit of a fuzzy idea. I mean, I, I suppose I have some sense of what the status quo is, but it strikes me as something that's kind of difficult to define. And also one thing I, I wondered about it was that if if the current status quo is defined by change, if there's a trajectory or a trend in the current status quo, like the example I had was just, you know, a consistent economic growth rate that involves compounding change over time. Does that... It, if we continue with that growth rate into the future, does that mean that we're maintaining the status quo or is it something different? Out of everything in the entire paper, this question right here is the one that the co-authors and I argued amongst ourselves about more than anything else. Uh, this was really controversial for us. Uh, some people uh, maybe didn't even like the the concept of status quo because if you think about it, uh, our civilization is not static. It's constantly changing in different ways. There, and so if you if you really look at it closely, there really is no status quo that that we have any expectation of of maintaining. Uh, that would be if you have a a fairly restrictive definition of status quo but you know that's that's one valid way of looking at it ultimately in the paper we entertained a broader uh, uh, definition of status quo that permits uh, some change to civilization um, but the uh, our restriction was that the change has to be within the general bounds of the ways in which civilization has been changing and even that's a tricky one. So we considered it could be uh, changing at the, the same rate that it's currently changing, or the rate of change could be changing at the same rate that certain rates of change are changing right now. So at, at the moment, for example, the total world population is increasing, and it is increasing at a decreasing rate, which means that population growth is slowing. And in fact, some uh, basic population projections expect that uh, the total human population will actually uh, plateau, will reach a peak, uh, maybe sometime within the next century. Uh, we don't know for sure if that's going to happen. We, we can't predict exactly what's going to play out with the, the human population even just over the next few decades. But there, that could be considered within the scope of a, a, a status quo trajectory. And likewise, for other aspects of it, like you know, our, our our technology will continue to change. Uh, we can be, I think we can be pretty pretty certain about that. But it might change in ways that leaves our world looking broadly similar to how it looks now. And I guess ultimately, that to me is uh, how I would interpret a status quo trajectory. It's it's a it's a a trajectory in which the the overall story of human civilization it's it's not uh going through any major radical changes that it's it's basically the the story that we've been going through you know projected on into the future yeah i suppose that naturally then leads to the question is that given the kinds of complexities and difficulty you had with defining the or coming up with the definition of the idea of the status quo and the disagreement there does this mean that the status quo trajectory is not very likely not very plausible in the long term um, again based on past experiences to some extent and also reasonable projections from the current day and age it's we're not likely to maintain any semblance of the status quo 
Well, even if uh, you know, we can be confident in our definition of status quo civilizations, it's still the case that there are uh, some, uh, I would say, fairly compelling reasons to expect that the status quo will not per persist indefinitely into the future. Or the simplest reason to me is uh, what I had mentioned before about the sun gradually getting warmer and larger and eventually will engulf planet Earth such that, you know, if, if, if we can say anything about the status quo civilization, it exists on planet Earth. Uh, and if nothing else, uh, as the sun gets warmer and larger, that cannot continue. So that provides, I think, a fairly basic uh, uh, limit to how long the uh, status quo civilization can persist. But it may even be unlikely that it persists for anywhere near that long. We're talking you know, at least hundreds of millions of years into the future. There are a number of ways that the status quo could fundamentally change. And it struck us as, as reasonably likely that at least one of those changes would occur even before a few hundred million years from now, which is indeed quite, quite a long time from now. Yeah, and I think we'll probably get into the, some of the obvious ways in which it can change when we discuss the other scenarios, since they're all about the things that are likely to disrupt the, the status quo. But uh, before we go on to those other scenarios, I mean, what about the ethics of maintaining the current equilibrium, so to speak? I mean, is that something that we should be interested in maintaining? Um, how does this, how does that factor into the how we think about the, the status quo trajectory? I think this is uh, a question that a lot of people are likely to disagree on. Uh, essentially, how much should we value the current state of affairs uh, simply because it is the, the current state of affairs? Uh, or alternatively, uh, if we maybe we know we have something good going on right now, should we be nervous or, or, or uncomfortable with changes, especially changes that could make things worse than they are now? My own view is that I don't think we should value the status quo simply because it is the status quo. The fact that that's how things already are, to me, does not imply that you know that's how things should be or that things would be better that way, uh, especially... You know, noting what it took to to get where we are now, it's easy to see ways in which things could could get better than they are now. And so, I personally would be would be comfortable with changes to the status quo, even very significant changes to the status quo. But I do think that we should be cautious, be careful when we're considering bringing about such major changes to make sure that we are indeed making the changes that, that we think we really should be making that, that would be positive for the world. I do think that, that we should be careful about it to make sure that we get it right. But my own personal view is that we should ultimately be comfortable making such changes. Yeah, I suppose there's two things I would say about it. One is that how much you value the current state of affairs is probably contingent upon your position within it and how much you benefit from it so you know certain elites for whom things are going very well are unlikely to want disruption to the current pattern of human civilization whereas people who are not faring so well in the current uh, social contract may want some change so that's just one point but also another point is that there seems to be some evidence to suggest that we tend to overvalue 
the status quo and this has been discussed in ethics for quite some time you're probably familiar with the the paper written by um, Nick Bellstrom and Toby Ord quite a number of years back now called the reversal test and how to overcome the status quo bias in applied ethical reasoning that it was the paper was based on this idea that people have this kind of irrational loyalty to the current state of affairs and uh, we need to introduce heuristics or frameworks for thinking that allow us to overcome that irrational well, bias. Is, I mean, that's, this is actually a concept that has been very well documented for, for several decades, starting dating to the work, uh, I believe, in the 1970s on the psychology of loss aversion, where the idea here is that people tend to value losses quite a lot more than they they value gains that you, you take um an equivalent loss and gains a uh, you know losing a dollar versus gaining a dollar for a person who has plenty of money and you know losing and gaining a dollar means about the same to them they care a lot more about losing that dollar than they do about gaining that dollar even though uh, in principle, it should mean about the same to them. You know, that's it's uh, this is essentially uh, an expression of of preferring the status quo, where it's the change, the especially the the negative change that uh, really uh, uh, really compels people in certain ways. That we do not get that excited about improvements to the status quo. But we do get really, really concerned about deterioration in the status quo. Yeah, and I think actually Nick Wellstrom and Toby Ord's paper is based on or references those uh, studies from economics or cognitive psychology. I, I have written in the past kind of defenses of evaluative conser conservatism of some sort that like some attachment to things that are currently valuable makes sense and it's not irrational. But I think I'm with you in that we shouldn't be loyal to the current status quo just because it's what we currently have. That doesn't make any sense. It has to be rooted in some attachment to something of, of value. Uh, and we can certainly consider changes to that position. And also, sometimes change is what you need to preserve the thing that you value. You need to you know, run to stay in the same place, so to speak. That's, that's a, another point, I think, that affects how we value uh, the status quo. Let's move on, though, to the second set of scenarios, which is the cata catastrophe scenarios. So, you know, what is a catastrophic scenario? What does that entail for you? And you have a, dis a discussion of this in the paper, but it's pretty clear that it doesn't require the full extinction of the human species for something for a future to be catastrophic. But what does it entail or require for it to count as uh, catastrophic? I believe in the paper, we simply uh, define a catastrophe as something that would bring significant harm to human civilization. And a reason for having uh, a bit more of a, a vague and open-ended definition like that is it leaves open the, the possibility of having more specific definitions of catastrophe rooted in uh, one's particular ethical perspective. Uh, we didn't want to attach the paper to any one specific ethical perspective. And so different ethical ethical perspectives or views might uh, define catastrophe in different ways. But as a, a basic definition, uh, significant harm to human civilization is, is what we used in the paper, I believe. Now, I, again, I appreciate that this is your entire area of research or study this is what you focus on most but one of the things that comes across clearly in the paper is that you think catastrophes are pretty likely 
I suppose, you know, why is that? And what are the most plausible catastrophes human civilization is likely to face in the future? Well, the reason I would say uh, a catastrophe of, of this magnitude is, is reasonably likely is just because we can already point to a number of uh, seemingly very, very serious threats that we face. And especially as um, you extend out over longer and longer timescales, the odds of one of these uh, catastrophe scenarios occurring becomes larger and larger. And that if you take, for example, uh, nuclear war, this is one of the, the risks that, that I've studied in some detail, uh, we speak in terms of the probability of nuclear war, not overall, but in terms of the probability per unit time. So what is the probability of there being any sort of nuclear war occurring within the next decade, for example? Well, the probability over the next decade, whatever that is, is presumably smaller than the probability over the next century which is presumably smaller over the next thousand years and, and so on. And you know, likewise for, for other types of catastrophes, such that as long as nothing else happens that would uh, significantly, that would make it very difficult for a catastrophe to occur, and this gets into some of the other types of, of trajectories that we'll talk about later, barring things of that sort, uh, it seems fairly likely that a catastrophe will hit our civilization at some point uh, over the uh, over the future. I mean, is part of the thinking here as well influenced by the study of past civilizations in the sense that they have gone through or passed through catastrophes? And, you know, we are all familiar with famous examples of civilizations that no longer exist. So if we, if we read the record of history, it seems like we have reason to suppose that our civilization is highly unlikely to survive for the long term. Uh, yes, we know from from this history the the Easter Islands and you know the ancient Egypt and and so on that the demise of civilizations this is a thing that can happen and and has happened uh, a number of times. Now it's important to recognize that the civilization that we have now this you know advanced modern global civilization that, that we live in is substantially different from these other civilizations that have come and gone. And so just because those other civilizations did collapse, it doesn't mean that our civilization necessarily would or would for the same sorts of factors. It is at least suggestive of the possibility. And I would say uh, there's some reasons to believe that our civilization would be more resilient and maybe some reasons to think that our civilization might actually be less resilient. And I feel like the question of uh, so the question of how overall resilient our current civilization is to catastrophes of one sort or another, I personally feel like the jury is still out on this one. Yeah, I actually just wrote a piece about this. I was reviewing it's a famous book, Joseph Tainter's The Logic or The Collapse of Complex Societies. I think that's the title of the book. And I was just looking over the argument in that. And there is a bit of a dispute in archaeology about whether ancient civilizations really did go through catastrophic collapses and uh, the suggestion that they have oftentimes just adapted and continued in other forms. But this actually leads, I think, to the next question I wanted to ask. And this is part of your paper that I quite liked and just thought it was really interesting, was if we assume that catastrophe lies in the human future... How do we 
think about that ethically now in terms of, you know, how do we guarantee or ensure that human civilization can be restored post-catastrophe and that the future isn't one where we will just be wiped out? And you have a, quite a, an elaborate discussion of this phenomenon in, in the paper. I suppose one thing that comes out from that discussion is that you think there are two things that are going to be the key to the restoration of human civilization post-catastrophe, and that is the restoration of agriculture and industry. And I, I had two questions about that. One was that, why do you focus on those two things? That's probably an obvious enough answer. But also, assuming those two things are important, how can we try and guarantee that we will be able to restore those things post-catastrophe in the pre- now? Is, are there steps we could take now to plan for the post-catastrophe civilization? Across the entire field of catastrophic risk, to me, this is the largest and most important area of uncertainty. That if you do have a catastrophe that uh, causes significant harm to, or, or even the, the collapse of our modern global civilization, what happens next? What happens to the, the survivors of that? If, if there are survivors, if you know everyone dies, then what happens next is fairly straightforward. We're, we're dead and that's it. But if there are survivors, the question of what happens next is, um, uh, to me, uh, really just a major point of uncertainty. It's hard to figure out because we're talking about a, a scenario, a, a situation that is quite different from what we have now. But nonetheless, we can uh, make some progress on it. And that's what we try to do in this part of the paper. Uh, so first, with respect to why it would be important to restore agriculture and industry. Yeah, and the uh, kind of obvious uh, uh, reasons for this is, is um, what we emphasize, that agriculture and industry are just so central to uh, our civilization. And likewise, it was difficult for us to imagine an advanced a civilization along the lines of what we have now without agriculture and industry. Agriculture is what enables us to uh, do more than just grow food or uh, uh, procure food with our time. It enables us to have cities and, and complex societies. And then industry uh, enables us to you know, produce advanced technology and, and uh, manufacture all the things that, that we uh, base uh, our civilization off of, uh, to a large extent, the civilization that we live now is basically just a, a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution, that that was really the, the key turning point. And so for those reasons, uh, we felt it was important to focus on whether agriculture and industry would be important. And as far as what we could do now, to try to make that more likely. Well, so the first thing that we can do now is try to prevent the catastrophes from happening in the first place. That's uh, that, that should be the starting point. But then in the event of a catastrophe, uh, the things that can be done to aid the survivors would be to give them the resources and the, the knowledge, the, the skill to maintain or, or redevelop agriculture and industry if they find themselves on their own. And there's even been some, some dedicated work on this topic. Uh, a researcher named uh, Louis Dartnell wrote a whole book on essentially how to rebuild civilization more or less from scratch in the event that it's lost in a catastrophe of that sort. Uh, that sort of insight and uh, 
both both the knowledge but also the, the resources, the materials that would be useful for that. A lot of that, these are things that we can put into place now while civilization remains intact and make them available uh, for survivors. Now, the trick is the survivors have to be able to access them. And so this requires having a bit of an understanding of who's going to survive and where they're going to live. But these are these are projects that, that we can make some progress on now. And uh, it's not a type of work that I feel is getting a lot of attention these days. It's kind of grim. I feel like a lot of people just don't want to think about it. But uh, for the sake of the long-term future of human civilization, I believe actually this could be uh, very, very important work, very valuable. Yeah, I can imagine it's a kind of inquiry or work that is difficult to get people motivated on because it involves them projecting human civilization into a future that both they don't want to imagine and also might be difficult for them to imagine. But I'm, I'm curious about how you think, what do you think the distribution of research effort or research capital should be when it comes to trying to prevent catastrophic risks versus trying to plan for post-catastrophic risk societies. I mean, do you think that we should be investing time and energy now in protecting certain populations so that we have a minimal viable population post-catastrophe, you know, investing in the creation of bunkers under the, the earth or in space or something like that that can hoard future populations? This reminds me of the plot to I think a James Bond movie, but um, is that something that we should be considering at this present moment in time? Well, it can't hurt to consider it. Uh, with respect to this idea of having uh, uh, refuges, in, uh, whether in outer space or, or buried in Earth or so, my own take on this, and this is something that I've, I've written on before, is that if for uh, many people, this will not be the best option for what they can do, especially anything in outer space. I mean, that's just expensive. On the other hand, if there is going to be, say, an outer space mission anyway, and there's a lot of talk about doing a lot of outer space missions, including potentially even permanent colonies, uh, whether on the moon or Mars, then it may be relatively viable to essentially uh, piggyback a refuge onto onto one of these missions. And that might be a, a more viable, more, say, cost-effective option. Um, but more generally, uh, as far as how much work should go to the survival and recovery post-catastrophe versus on preventing the catastrophe, um, I can't quote you an exact uh, number for what the breakdown should be, but I can say that I feel like the survival and recovery is relatively neglected. There, the amount of work going, on, going to that is extremely small. And it should not be that small. I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. Um, part of it is just it's kind of nobody's job. And so it's something that is, um, is easy to slip through the cracks. Another aspect of it is that within the catastrophic risk community that you know, I, I myself am, am part of, I see oftentimes a tendency to focus narrowly on uh, risks to human extinction. And uh, this is often done for reasons that I think are mistaken. And this was actually one of my own personal motivations for pursuing this paper. This uh, re recall started at as a conversation at a conference on uh, existential risk. I feel like there's been a lot of confusion 
about the idea of existential risk and that that has pointed people in in some mistaken directions, in particular by uh, reaching the conclusion that it is only the human extinction risks that could really matter when considering the the long term uh, uh, future of human civilization. And the idea that only the human extinction risks matter that can be traced to work in the 1980s by by the philosopher Derek Parfit and the, the astronomer Carl Sagan were both put out this idea that uh, you know as long as there's some survivors then. Uh, you know, there'll be some people living on into the future, and so it's not as bad of a harm. Uh, well, what we do in this paper is say, okay, sure, there might be some survivors, but that doesn't mean that everything will be just like it was, as if there was, uh, if there was no catastrophe. There still could be a major and permanent harm to human civilization, and uh, so what we're trying to do. Uh, one thing that we're trying to do, and at least in this part of the paper, is to assess what would happen to the survivors and uh, figure out whether or not there would be a significant permanent harm, and then how that might factor into our present-day decision-making about, among other things, which um, which catastrophic risks we think we should focus on. I don't want to get too weighted down in this section of the paper. I, I recommend people uh, read it because it's uh, really interesting and also you've quite a number of nice graphs within it as well where you try to imagine or envisage what the, the long-term trajectories are, including one I note which involves a persistent oscillation between catastrophe and recovery. So this suggestion that this will be an internally recurring cycle of catastrophe and recurrence, which uh, might be somewhat... Uh, pessimistic for people. But let, let's move on to the third the third trajectory for human civilization, which is the technological transformation trajectory. And maybe I'll just break this into t- two questions first. Is like, what, what does it actually mean for there to be a technological transformation of civilization? How can we define or characterize that phenomenon? We define it as something that would put uh, human civilization into a fundamentally different state. And now exactly what that means gets uh, back into our earlier conversation about what the status quo is and what it, what it means for something to, to not be status quo anymore. But that is, in, in simple terms, how we defined it. Yeah, and so the other question I had arising from that then was, do you think that we have gone through technological transformations in the past? Do you think the Industrial Revolution would be an example of a, a technological transformation of human civilization or maybe current advances in t- computer technology or possibly, I guess, in the future, AI? Are these the scenarios and that you're imagining here? Yeah. I, if somebody wanted to argue that the Industrial Revolution was itself a technological transformation, I, I wouldn't necessarily object. I don't personally have a, a clear view on this, but it's, it's not obviously wrong. Uh, I guess is the the modest thing I can say to that. And then with respect to future technological transformations, in our paper, we looked at three areas of technology, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, and nanotechnology. So the nanotechnology, we're thinking of not really the, the nanotech that we have right now, but the future possibility of um, what's known as molecular nanotechnology or maybe atomically precise manufacturing uh, essentially, where we gain the capacity to uh, produce uh, a wide range of of products 
fairly fairly easily and and abundantly, such that I mean it's essentially like the the industrial revolution almost taken to its logical extreme, where we've essentially solved manufacturing, and uh, the the world could well look radically different than it does now uh, in the event that that happens. With respect to biotechnology, we were thinking in particular of uh, scenarios or, or applications of, of biotechnology in which human nature starts to be altered. Uh, this is you know, ideas related to, to transhumanism. And then with respect to artificial intelligence, we were thinking in particular of the more transformative advanced types of AI, including you know, artificial general intelligence, uh, super intelligence, things of that sort, where we now could have computer minds that can just massively outperform human minds in, in a wide range of respects and could potentially uh, really transform the world in the process. And also, I think, crucially, the combination of all of these technologies is something that should be factored in when we think about the technological transformation, that it might, might not just be any one thing. It might be the emergent property or function of the these converging trends in technological advance. Yes, and it, and it could also include not just a combination of these three technologies, uh, but also other technologies that we didn't identify in the paper. We don't claim this to be an exhaustive list. So, I mean, there's a few questions that arise then. I mean, in terms of the ethics of it or the, the likelihood of it, uh, we could address both of those first. I mean, do you think technological transformation of human civilization is likely? And do you think it's desirable? I think it's plenty likely enough that the prospect should be taken very seriously. And this is something where you don't need to be concerned about outcomes over you know, timescales of millions or billions of years to take seriously. This is, uh, we're, we're now talking about uh, trends that could play out on timescales of, of, say, decades, maybe, you know, maybe within our lifetimes even. And so you don't need to have uh, such an extreme future orientation to care about that, though it's certain, certainly... Uh, very relevant for the long-term trajectories as well. And what was what was the other question? So the other question then is in terms of the desirability of it, the ethics of it. Well, you had previously asked uh, whether we should favor the status quo because it is the status quo. And I personally said, no, we should not. And so likewise, I believe we should be open to the prospect of trans technological transformation and that we should evaluate it on a case-by-case -case basis and that we should you know, take each possible transformation in its own terms and, and decide based on the details whether we think that would be better or worse than what we have now. Yeah, one of the things that comes out though from the discussion, and this features a lot in the existential risk and catastrophic risk community, is that technology is this kind of double-edged sword that it, it has the prospect of making things so much better but it's also making things riskier and more vulnerable i mean what's your view on that is that are we balanced on a knife edge when it comes to technological transformation is it either going to be really good or really really bad it, i wouldn't say it necessarily has to be one or the other uh it's i think not too hard to imagine scenarios in which technology changes quite dramatically but the result ends up being somewhat over excuse me somewhat underwhelming i feel like uh over the last few decades or maybe even few centuries 
at least some aspects of the maybe not quite as radical, but still non-trivial technological changes that we've gone through have nonetheless left some aspects of our lives more or less the same that we maybe still go through a lot of the same, you know, uh, emotional journeys as we make our ways through, make our way through our lives. That said, uh, the technologies that we're talking about here are very major changes in the capacity of our civilization, what we're capable of doing. And because we'd be capable of doing so much more, uh, that includes potentially a lot more harm and potentially also a lot more good than what we've been doing before. And so while it's important to keep that in perspective and recognize that some changes maybe don't really change our, our lives in, in important respects, other changes maybe do and could really make a, a dramatic difference for, for better or for worse. But what about the last trajectory then for the human future, the astronomical trajectory? And I mean, one question that I have about that is like, why is that treated separately from technological transformation? Since presumably, well, actually, maybe first you should uh, clarify what is meant by an astronomical trajectory. And then um, why isn't it just the same thing as a technological transformation tra trajectory? When you look at the trajectories themselves as, uh, you know, as graphs of um, you know, whatever you're valuing as a function of time, they can look quite similar. In fact, in the paper, we had the, both uh, both of those trajectories share the same set of, of graphs, though uh, one difference is that the technological transformation could also share the graphs of from the, um, the, uh, the catastrophe trajectories, whereas the astronomical uh, trajectories would tend to look different from catastrophe trajectories. A basic reason for separating them is that they involve different processes, uh, draw on different uh, bodies of knowledge, and have the potential to be uh, ultimately distinct, and that you could have a technological transformation that expands human civilization in dramatic ways, but nonetheless does not leave our home planet. And likewise, to be able to achieve certain types of advances, ultimately, we would need to leave the home planet. Just we had, we had mentioned earlier about how in a few hundred million years or a billion years or so, we won't be able to live on Earth anymore. And there may be no amount of, of new technology that would, would solve that problem, that would enable us to, to continue living here. In fact, uh, superficially, at least, it would seem easier to go live somewhere else than it would be to push back against the, the warming and lar uh, uh, expanding of the sun, such that, uh, you know, ultimately, over the long term, we would need to uh, spread beyond our home planet in order to continue to survive. And that even over shorter timescales, even if uh, with technology, we could, you know, radically change what we're able to do here on Earth we still would be fundamentally limited um, just you know, by the, the size of the Earth uh, unless we're able to expand beyond it. Yeah, so it seems like in, in the very long term, an astronomical trajectory is kind of the only option for human civilization if it's to survive and continue. I get the sense that you're a, a fan of astronomical trajectories, of this idea of colonizing space and exploring space. You have a a short article in the magazine Nautilus, and I'm sure maybe you didn't pick the title of it, so 
this might be unfair, but it's called Space Colonization and the Meaning of Life, and the subtitle is that colonizing the galaxy is the highest good that humanity could achieve. Um, is that your position? Is that your view? Essentially. Uh, so uh, to, to explain this a little bit as, as an ethical principle, uh, I am essentially of the view that more is better, that for whatever it is that, that we think is good, if we have more of that thing, then that would be better. And if we have even more than that, then that would be better still. Uh, and you know, with with that view in mind, if you want more of things, then, well, you can get quite a lot more if we're able to expand beyond our, our home planet because you know, it is indeed a small world after all relative to the rest of the universe. Uh, including the rest of the universe that we're able to uh, potentially access as a civilization. And so that's why I think expanding beyond Earth can be so important for whatever it is that, that we might value. I presume from that that you are familiar with Nick Bostrom's paper on astronomical waste and the opportunity cost of delayed technological development. Um, are you familiar with that paper? Yeah, I'm familiar with that paper and, and other papers that, that have made similar sorts of arguments. So, I mean, would that be similar to your view, again, when it comes to the distribution of research capital or effort, we should be investing more in space colonization efforts? If I recall correctly, that specific paper uh, ultimately argued for uh, a more immediate focus on uh, avoiding catastrophe with a later focus on space colonization. And uh, I would say from the uh, uh, the work that we did on this long-term trajectories paper, it's less obvious that that is in fact the correct conclusion. That uh, So having done a little bit of analysis of the details of what the uh, space colonization could end up looking like, how it could proceed, it at least based on the, the initial analysis that we were able to do in this paper, it would seem that a, a delay in space colonization has the potential to be of comparable importance to a uh, reduction in the risk and catastrophe or likewise an increase in the probability of eventual space colonization uh, such that in practice, uh, for the world that we live in right now, which of those, the promoting space colonization or reducing catastrophic risk, which of those would in practice be the, the better thing to focus on will depend less on these kind of more philosophical analyses and more on where an individual happens to have better opportunities. Um, my sense is at the moment, the best opportunities happen to lie in uh, preventing catastrophe and not in promoting space colonization. And the main reason for that is that space colonization is actually extremely difficult with the technology that we have right now, and that you know, the focus should be making sure our civilization continues to remain intact while our technology matures. And then once our technology has reached a, a more advanced state, then it may it would probably make more sense to invest more heavily in, in space colonization. Yeah, I, mean, I wasn't going to ask this question, but now that we've gone into it, I, 
It's, you know, one of your co-authors on the paper is um, Phil Torres, and I think that's how you pronounce his name. I've, I'm not sure, but he's written a paper where he's argued very vehemently against the idea of space colonization on the grounds that it could expose us to more catastrophic risks, uh, kind of universe-wide catastrophic risks, never mind Earth-wide catastrophic risks. Uh, do you have any view on that or any sense of that? If I recall correctly, and, and I'm not certain of this, uh, you might know the answer to this offhand, um, that uh, this paper expresses a concern that space colonization could be, in aggregate, a bad thing uh, by, uh, in particular, by increasing the amount of suffering in the universe. Uh, do you know if I'm if I'm recalling correctly on this point? The core of the paper, as I recall, is that the chances of a of a catastrophic intergalactic war are very high because it's very difficult to keep peace across space colonies. That that was kind of the essence of the the argument. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's a, a, a slightly different matter. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. So I don't I don't have a, a great sense or how likely that should be. It, it is a possible uh, possibility that we included in our long-term trajectories paper. Uh, we even got to use the phrase uh, uh, Star Wars at one point, which was kind of fun. The, the idea, is, as you were describing it, is that uh, because of the really large distances across outer space, that uh, you might have uh, inevitably a, a substantial fragmenting of civilization where you know the the population that ends up in in one portion of the galaxy may be quite uh, uh, different and independent from those in, in other parts and as a result they may uh, find themselves in, in adversarial relationships and that uh, uh, as a consequence of that could end up having you know major major wars essentially star wars uh, against each other and that this is something that could reduce the long-term uh, potential of human civilization. As um, uh, we discussed it in the long-term trajectories paper, if I recall correctly, we had imagined a scenario in which the growth in civilization as it spread across the galaxy or, or galaxies, plural, would peak after the initial expansion and then dip down a bit due to the loss in value from the wars. Now, I believe the, the dip in value that we had described in our paper was just a partial loss of value, not something that would eliminate the total value of human civilization or, or render it negative. Whether it would be negative, I think that would mainly come from uh, ethical perspectives that place a, a high degree of weight on suffering, which is something that we talk about in, in the paper. Some of our co-authors in particular are are very interested in, in ethical views that emphasize suffering. And um, so that's one way that space colonization could end up being a, a net negative. But just from the wars themselves without weighting suffering, all right. intuitively, it seems less likely that that would put things as a net negative. It just seems like that could be something that would result in a uh, somewhat smaller positive, maybe a much larger, smaller, po uh, 
maybe a much smaller positive, but but a positive nonetheless, such that space colonization would still be a, a very good thing. Yeah, I mean, my sense of it is that I think it's difficult to uh, make plausible judgments about the different risks that are involved here. I mean, like it's it is to some extent necessarily speculative, but my intuition is, is similar to yours. And I, I think Phil probably overestimates the risks involved or the costs involved in his paper. Uh, I think the other paper that you're talking about is by um, Brian Tomasic and um, is it Kaj Sotala? They, they've written a paper about suffering risks in in space as well. But look, I think maybe we're probably coming to the end of the discussion. Uh, just one last question to wrap up here on this theme. Oh, you've written this paper now. It was partly an effort to call for a new type of inquiry, a new type of study. How do you see it developing from here? What would you like to see happen next? Well, uh, so far, I'll say that I've been really happy with the reception that the paper has has received. It is not the usual topic for a research paper, but uh, it's been received quite positively, uh, including by uh, people who uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect to, to be interested in this sort of topic. Um, my hope is that that will continue uh, and that there will be uh, further work on this topic, uh, including from a, a wider set of people than, than would uh, typically work on it. I hope that with this paper, we have provided a starting point for researchers from a wide range of backgrounds uh, the paper itself touches on a wide range of disciplines. Uh, and I also hope that we have shown why this can be uh, not just an interesting intellectual exercise, but something that can uh, meaningfully inform the practical decisions that, that we face as society and even as individuals really on a, a day-to-day basis. And that to me is perhaps the most uh, interesting and powerful aspect of this topic that all these seemingly esoteric topics like actual star wars and you know the potential future demise of civilization and whether we would uh rebuild industry and in some future scenario and so on like this all matters for what we think we should be doing like you know next week wednesday afternoon or whatever it might be and so my hope is that uh, this idea will continue to spread and it will spark uh, uh, further work on it and more generally a, an overall society or civilization that is focused on what is best for its long-term interests, its long-term trajectory, as opposed to just you know, what might be in its own best interest at the moment. That's great. Uh, thanks for joining for the for this conversation, Seth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a it was a good conversation.